This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Well, tonight is going to be the last lesson on the, um, the practical mechanics of what makes a good story. And then next week we're going to get into the scenarios in which we can use stories uh, for spiritual reasons to, to point people to the Lord. And we'll be talking about, about that side of it and how to do that. But tonight we're going to be considering the principles of well-paced stories. So let's pray and then we'll begin with the story. Our Father, we're grateful for tonight's opportunity to learn. We ask that you would guide us as we seek to learn. Uh, may our may we have understanding, may we have discernment. Would you help us to be able to take practical lessons from what we can cons- uh, consider tonight uh, so that we can be effective communicators for you. Lord, may you guide us by your spirit as we think about these things and seek to apply them to our own lives. Uh, give us the, the wisdom you only you can give. And uh, we just ask for your leading during this time. Thank you for each one who's here, for their desire to be used by you in this way. Would you guide us all? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, tonight, the story we're going to consider is a very familiar one, but it's a great illustration of some of the elements of well-paced stories. I'm not going to read the whole story from Scripture because it would take most of our time tonight. So I'm going to to work us through it. But we're going to be considering the story of Jonah. Alright? It begins with a voice from heaven. A man named Jonah hears directly from God. And God tells him to travel to the great city of Nineveh and cry out against its wickedness. Jonah's response is swift and decisive. He runs away. He, pay, he pays his way, quickly boards a ship, and sets out to sea. And then, just like that, there's a great storm. Wind is blowing the waves up in such a way that even the seasoned sailors on the ship are afraid for their lives. Jonah, meanwhile, even as this crew cries out frantically for mercy from the gods, is asleep. Well, as the storm rages, uh, the action slows a bit as the crew tries to determine the cause for the storm. Uh, They come to Jonah, they question him, and he explains to them that his disobedience to the one true God is the reason for this storm. It's due to him. It's his fault. He tells them that the way to make the storm stop is to throw him overboard. Well, they work hard to avoid that. They try to to push against the storm, get out of it, and they can't do it. And so finally they realize their efforts are futile. They give in and throw Jonah in. Well, Jonah's tossed by the waves, but even as he expected death, he's suddenly swallowed. And for three days, his life flows to a crawl. He cries out to God in prayer, humbling himself before God and asking for God's mercy. And then, he's on the shore. And once again, a voice comes from heaven. Again, the the same challenge, the same command. And again, Jonah's response is swift and decisive, but this time, he goes. He enters Nineveh, he's preaching the message of swiftly approaching judgment, and with very little coercion, the people believe. They repent, they humble themselves before God, begging for his mercy. There's a decree that comes from the king of Nineveh himself. 
It's detailed, it's all-inclusive. He calls for the people to fast, to humble themselves, to repent, and to pray to God. Well, God sees all this, he hears, and he withdraws his judgment. In response to that, Jonah begins to fume. Alongside all the humble, contrite prayers that are rising from Nineveh, there rises an angry, self-righteous prayer from a disgruntled prophet. And as he complains to God, God's answer is simple. Doest thou well to be angry? Well, Jonah sits to watch this vast heathen city and what's going to happen to it, and a plant grows up, providing him welcome shade in the desert environment. And uh, he enjoys that shadow, and his mood begins to improve a little bit. But a worm comes and eats the plant. And as the sun rises, promising another scorching day, a strong east wind comes, blowing off the desert, and once again he's miserable. And he wallows in self-pity. He begins dramatically even to wish for death. And again a voice comes from heaven, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? Well, Jonah's reply to God is defiant. He says, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then the story ends with one last message from heaven. Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Now, I hope that it's hard to communicate this to some degree, uh, going through quickly, but I hope even as you've considered that familiar story, you're able to think about some of the ways that pacing in that story keeps us engaged. Um, sometimes in the story of Jonah, things are really happening. There's a lot of action. It's just boom, boom, boom. There's stuff going on. There's other times where it slows down. It slows down as Jonah is in the belly of the whale. It slows down even in the middle of the storm as they're trying to figure out what's going on and what's caused this storm. It slows down as Jonah is outside the city considering what's going to happen and having this conversation with God. And so there's this, this varying of pace between a lot of action and less action. That varying pace and the way that this story begins and ends all help draw us in and make it one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and one from which we can learn a lot of lessons. So, tonight, I hope it'll be clear that pacing makes a difference. Now, just to be clear, what do I mean by pacing? Um, in case there's a question about that. I'm referring to the speed with which a story moves. So, there are fast-paced stories, packed full of action. There's a lot going on. And sometimes all through the story, it seems like it's just action, 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 action. There are other stories that are slow-paced, where the focus is more on um, what people say or what they think or just a slow unfolding of events. But most good stories are going to have a bit of both. Um, there's going to be some action. There's going to be some things that are really moving. And there's going to be other times when it's more thoughtful and it slows down a little bit. All good stories are going to be intentional 
with how they look at the aspect of pacing. It's going to match with the message. So one of the most important aspects as we think about the idea of pacing is to consider how to begin. How do we begin our stories? How does pacing enter into that? It matters how you start a story. I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me. It was back in uh, August. Uh, Becca and I were having a little time away for our anniversary. And our anniversary is actually in July, but because Vacation Bible School is in July, I'm really busy planning and doing stuff with that. So a lot of times our celebration of our anniversary doesn't happen until August. So that's what we were doing. We didn't go out of town or anything. We just stayed here. Um, and my, my parents watched the kids for us for a day or so. Uh, the kids spent the night with them at their house. And they actually just watched Aaron and Ezra. We kept Ivy with us um, because she was less than a year old at that point. And, um, so she was with us, but anyway, we were out running some errands, and we decided to grab some sushi at Kroger, the one that's over on College Drive. I know it might sound crazy, but we like the, the packaged sushi from Kroger. Um, and uh, we were in the parking lot there, and we'd just been in another store, uh, in Michael's, and I know they're right next to each other, but we were going to drive from the Michael's parking lot over to the Kroger parking lot to get some of that packaged sushi. And uh, I tried to start the van, and it wouldn't start. Now, I'm going to give you the rest of the story later on, but let me ask you, how well did I do starting that story? How was my pacing? That was a horrible beginning to a story, in case you were wondering, all right? You're trying to be kind to me, and I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. That was a horrible way to start the story. But how often do we start stories that way? Um, pacing is really important at the beginning because one of the things I talked about last week. I need to care about your story from the beginning. Now, once I mentioned sushi from Kroger, some of you started to care. All right? <laughs> But I didn't give you a single reason to care or to think that anything of importance is going to happen. Um, I was setting all of this mostly unnecessary backstory and not getting into the action. What we need to do with the beginning of a story is, I, last week I talked about the promise that we should begin with. And what I mean by that is we should say something at the beginning that lets you know there's something coming. There's information you're holding out on. Something, there's, there's an issue that's going to have to be resolved. There's going to be something that, that's going to have to be taken care of. I need to know from the beginning that there's something I need to care about that way. So you need to begin with that promise. Another way to think about it is you need to introduce tension. Tension is the fuel that keeps a story running. If there's no tension then nobody's going to care. And so, in that example I just gave you, I didn't introduce tension until the very end of what I was saying. And by that time, I'd already lost you. Now, you guys are nice. You kept listening, um, mostly because you're stuck here, and uh, you, you know you're supposed to stay till the end of class. But if that was just a story somebody was sharing with you, they would have lost you f almost from the beginning. You've got to start by introducing the tension. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's a, a dilemma. There's a decision that needs to be made. You've got to begin with the tension, all right? 
So the way pacing really comes in at the beginning, because you got to think about how do I begin this story in such a way that from the beginning, I'm helping people to care. I'm drawing them in. So we can be tempted to begin by saying, okay, here's my story beginning, but first of all, I need to give you the background. I need to tell you all the stuff that leads up to the actual story, or I need to give you this background information. I need to give you the backstory, and then we can get to the real story. That is not the effective way to tell a story. You start right in on the action. You start right in on the movement. You start right in on the tension. And we'll talk about it in just a minute. If you need to give the backstory, how to do that. But begin with action. Begin with motion. Think about every well-made movie ever. What do they begin with? Something's moving. Something's happening. Often it's like over-the-top dramatic. <laughs> But there's always action, there's always motion, there's always some tension going on. And then they might slow down after that and tell you what's really going on. But they pull you in by saying, here's the issue, or here's the problem, or wow, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. So we should think that way about our stories. One great example of pacing in scripture is the book of Ruth. We see a lot of the principles we'll talk about in the way that this story is shared. But consider how the book begins. So in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, here's what happens. A famine strikes. A guy named Elimelech moves his family, his wife and his two sons, to the pagan, family, pagan land of Moab to try to escape the famine. Elimelech dies. The two, two sons take wives. The two sons also die. Elimelech's wife or widow Naomi is left alone with the two widows of her sons, Orpah and Ruth. All of that action happens in five verses. It just begins with bam, 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 bam. All this stuff is happening. And that's what draws us into the story, and it's what introduces the tension as well. Um, in actual time, ten years elapse over the course of those five verses. But in the way that God's Spirit chose to give it to us, we get it with all of this action packed into these five verses. And it shows us there's something going on. Specifically, it's introducing us to this woman, Naomi, and the tension in her life, uh, which comes even more clearly as we continue on. But the tension is, Naomi thinks that God has abandoned her. She thinks that um, God has let her life just go down the tubes and God doesn't care anymore. But all of this action happening in the first five verses introduces us and pulls us in and says, there's a lot going on in this woman's life. And it sets the stage for what's going to, going to come. So how you begin is really important. But then that does beg the question, what if there is backstory or setting information that needs to be provided. If I'm not supposed to start with that, then how do I do it? So how do we explain when there's ex explanation that needs to happen in a story? Um, we, we can all agree, we all understand that beginning a story with explanation is not effective. It's one of the best ways to kill a story. But sometimes a story doesn't make sense without 
slowing down and saying, okay, so let me explain to you how this works or who this person is or, or what happened before this that led to this point. When that's necessary, or sometimes that is necessary. Last week we talked about how the setting can help keep our attention on what really matters in the story. Setting does matter. Where this is happening, what the surroundings are like. Sometimes we need to explain what's going on in someone's mind as they face a decision. Sometimes you need to give backstory so your hearers understand what's going on or they understand the significance of a crisis that has been reached. But explanation means slowing the pace of the story. So that's why this enters into our thoughts on pacing. Okay, You don't want the whole story to be slow or you're going to lose your hearers. So how do you do that in a way that isn't boring or tedious? Well, when you, you, when you choose to put the explanation into the story is very important. So the beginning is vital. The thing that is best going to prepare your listeners for something slow-paced is something fast-paced. So start out with action. Start out with motion. Start out with an introduction to the tension, to the crisis to the, the, the heart of what is making, um, what is pulling on the main character. And what you want to do is put your character on the edge of a cliff, all right? It, obviously, it's not necessarily going to be literally on the edge of a cliff. You might actually have a, a story where the character is literally on the edge of a cliff, but think of it in figurative terms. You want to put the character on the edge of the cliff. Something is about to happen. Um, they've reached this crisis point. They're either going to fall off the cliff, they're going to jump off the cliff, they're going to somehow escape from falling off the cliff, but they're at this point where something big is going to happen. You bring them there with the beginning, and then you step back and say, so let me explain how they got there. Now, it might seem cruel, but that's the best time to slow the pace of your story is when you've got people pulled in and they want to know what's going to happen next. When they are desperate to know what the next step is going to be, what's going to happen to the character, that's when you can effectively slow down without losing their attention. All right. So don't do it in just intentionally to be cruel and be like, oh, I've got this cliffhanger, but I'm going to make you wait. But, <laughs> but a cliffhanger is the best time for you to give that explanation. All right, because you've made them care. If you put the character on the edge of the cliff, they care what's going to happen next. So you can take the time to say, let's walk down to the bottom, and let me begin at the beginning and show you how they got up on that cliff. And they're going to care enough about what's going on to say, okay, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll take this journey with you. I'll let you give me the necessary backstory, the necessary information to bring us to that cliff's edge because I want to know what's going to happen next. The more dramatic the cliffhanger, the freer you are to give backstory and explanation. So if I were going to tell that story I began to tell earlier, I want to start out by saying, that I tried to start the car, I turned the key in the ignition, and it wouldn't start. 
That's the, the cliffhanger moment. Now, you might say that's not all that dramatic. Right? It's happened to all of us. But you care about what happened. You're like, okay, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. How are they going to fix the problem? How are they going to get out of this situation? All right? It's not something super dramatic. But if I introduce it with that, that I turn the key in the ignition, tried to start the van and it wouldn't start, you're going to care enough to let me back up and give you some explanation, give you some more information before we move on with the story and find out what happened next. All right. I'm getting myself out of order here. So when to explain, set that, put your character on a cliff, and then you can take me down to the bottom and lead me up the trail to get to the cliff and let me know how we got there. All right, how to explain. So when you do need to give that explanation, you need to give backstory, you need to explain something about the setting or someone's mindset or whatever, it's important that your listeners feel like they know where you're going. So if you, it doesn't matter how compelling that cliffhanger is, if you start going into back backstory information, and I don't know where you're going with this, and it doesn't make any sense, you're still going to lose me. So your hearers are going to have to feel like you have a reason for what you're sharing. So that means you need to have a reason for what you're sharing. You need to think about what is necessary or helpful backstory information. That's why you shouldn't just revel in the whole cliffhanger thing and say, okay, let me draw this out as long as I can. No, what actually matters to understanding that story, getting the lesson of the story across, giving the setting in a way that's going to draw my attention to what really matters. So be thoughtful, even if you do feel like you have some freedom to, to share that explanation, that backstory, be thoughtful about what you say. Make sure there's a direction that you're moving with it and that you're not just filling in a, a whole laundry list of information like I started with with that story. Almost all of that information is unnecessary to the story. You don't need to know all of that to care about what's going on or to go with me through the action of what's going on. So think about what you're sharing. Make sure there's a good reason for it. But then also be thoughtful in the way that you give the explanation. Be purposeful. Be thoughtful. One way that you can be purposeful and also show your listeners that you're being purposeful is by giving a summary statement and then going on with the details. So giving, giving kind of an overarching um, explanation of the explanation and backstory you're going to give so that there's kind of a heading and they realize, okay, all of this stuff comes under this heading. There's good biblical examples of this. One example is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What's the rest of the chapter? It's explanation that falls under that heading. So we know, okay, here's the heading. Here's where God is going with this. Here's what the rest of the explanation of this chapter is sharing. And so God is giving us a summary statement, and then he's fleshing it out. And since we know where it's heading, we know what all of this is talking about, we, we're, we're carried right along with it. Another example of this in scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah talks there about the experience he had entering the presence of God. But he begins that chapter, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. He begins with this 
summary statement. Here is what I saw. Here is the experience that I had. Then he goes on to explain the setting and explain more details about what he saw. And those details all support that summary statement, but we know he's not just kind of, you know, stream of consciousness talking about, oh, and then I remember I saw this and I saw this. No, he's going somewhere with this. And so he goes on to say that the Lord was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He, he saw the seraphims um, and, and what they were doing. And they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. But Isaiah uses this summary statement to tell us, here's what I'm explaining about what I experienced. So a strategic summary statement can set up that explanation. It can make it clear that you really are going somewhere with this. You've got a purpose with what you're sharing. I do want to really, really briefly um, comment on how to treat the timeline of a story. Because um, this, this can be part of the explanation that sometimes can be a little bit sticky. You don't want to be confusing in the way that you treat the timeline. We're never, I want to be clear, going to break the cardinal rule that we discussed in lesson two. Don't lie about the timeline. Don't deceive them about the timeline. Don't, don't mess with the timeline to make it easier to tell the story. Okay? That doesn't mean, though, that you have to say everything in chronological order. So, because you're going to aim to begin your story at a moment of crisis, a moment of tension, you're probably not going to start the story at the very beginning. And so, most of the time with a story, your timeline is going to look something like this. All right. So, you'll, your starting point will be, this is not to scale, just so you know. <laughs> All right, so your starting, line, your starting point will be somewhere not quite at the end, but also not at the beginning, okay? You'll start at that moment of crisis, that moment of tension. It's probably going to be closer to the end than it is to the beginning, all right? Then you're going to jump, all right? You're going to say, bam, here's what's going on. This problem, this decision, this, this moment of, of crisis, but let me explain to you how we got there. And then you're going to take me back to the beginning of the story. And then you're going to walk me up to the point where we get back to the crisis, and then we'll move on. All right, but most of the time, your timeline's going to look more like that. And that's fine. Like I said, it doesn't all have to be in chronological order. The key, though, is to be clear about where we're going, all right? When somebody's telling a story and you're not really sure what order things are happening in, that's where your attention's going to be. You're going to be like, wait, which one happened first? Did this, did this already happen or has it not happened yet? And so feel free to, to jump to a different point on the timeline. Just make sure you're clear about it. The Bible does this. Um, one example is the story we talked about the other, the other week with Jeremiah and the Rechabites. So Jeremiah invites this group, the Rechabites, in. God tells him to. And uh, he offers them all wine to drink. And then we get the backstory. One of these men stands up, and he explains that their ancestor, Jonadab, said that this is how our family is going to do things. And one of the things is they're not going to drink wine. 
And so because of that, they're not going to drink it. But the way that it's shared, if, if you missed that, I can give you the notes on it. And you can read the story in Jeremiah 35. But the way that we jump around in the timeline without getting confused is this guy stands up and he says, back then, nobody's confused about what order these things are happening in, but we're getting this important backstory. And so there's different ways to do this, but um, feel free to, to move around with the timeline as long as you're clear on that. And most of the time, that's going to be a good move as you try to tell the story in the way that's going to be most engaging. So, in summary, as we're talking about explanation in your story, backstory, explain as necessary, make sure that it comes in the context of the story, okay? So make sure that we're, there's, there's action beginning, then we can take time for explanation as the action continues to move along. Don't separate the explanation from the story, from the action. Um, put the character on that cliff and then take time for explanation once you get to that part don't bore me with details or over explain just to keep me on the edge of my seat take the time you need and then put me back in the action so before we get on to talking about um, the resolution of the tension or the end of the story which is another really important part of pacing I do want to just make some comments about pacing within the story in general. Um, I want to compare it to taking a hike. A good story is exercise for the brain. If a story is well told, it's going to engage the mind and the imagination of your hearers. Uh, it's going to make them think, not just about the story you're telling, but if you do it right, it's going to make them think about life in general. And it's going to make them think about their life in particular. That said, recognize that if you're doing this right, you are asking your hearers to do mental exercise. You're asking them to work. You're asking them to put their brains into action. And so um, I am not a fitness buff. Um, it's probably obvious. But <laughs> we, we have an elliptical, and I'm pretty consistent with using that, but that's it. Um, it's actually been an embarrassing long time since I've even done push-ups. But um, that said, I do recognize, maybe more so because I don't work out, that you can't, uh, when you exercise, you need to, to vary your resistance, I guess, if, you're, if it's really going to make a difference. So if you're trying to build muscle, uh, you're going to need to push yourself hard and then you're going to back off, and then you're going to push yourself hard again, and then you're going to back off. But you've got to, you've got to vary the resistance if it's going to do any good. Um, if you're going to build up speed in running, you need to go faster, and then you need to rest. And then you need to go faster, and then you need to rest. Now, I would argue that a good story that will really succeed in sticking and in making people think and a good story can make people think long after you're done telling the story. It's, there's going to be, need to be variation. All right? So if you're asking people to work, to exercise their minds, you're going to have to make sure the whole thing isn't a sprint. You're also going to have to make sure that it's not a marathon. 
Um, that's why I compare it to more of a hike, because a hike tends to vary in intensity. All right, there are some hikes that are pretty much the same the whole time, but most hikes there's going to be, um, if it's a if it's a fairly strenuous hike, there's going to be points where it's pretty even, not too difficult. There's going to be other points where you're going to have to work hard for for the distance that you cover. Um, maybe even you're going to have to get involved with climbing with your hands as well as walking with your feet. All right, if you're Working at it with a hike, you're probably going to have times where you're moving and then other times when you take a minute to rest. When you're telling a story, it can't all be action. We like action, but nonstop action is exhausting. A good storyteller is going to find a way to give the listeners a break. And that is sometimes where that time of explanation and backstory and giving us the setting comes in. Because especially if your story really begins with a lot of action, I'm going to want a little break before we move on with the action. And so think about that in the way that you, the way that you pace your story. Um, it could be that you, you give a little bit of a break by taking time to dig deeper into the thoughts of the character who's at the center of your story. So make my brain work. Make things happen. Get me thinking. But don't rush through the whole story. Uh, your story shouldn't be like a roller coaster where it's like adrenaline rush the whole way and at the end I'm like, that's over with. That was, that was quite the ride. You want to give me time to consider, to, to think, even as you're continuing the story, uh, to tell the story, for me to think about how does this apply to my life? What are the lessons that are takeaways from this story? And without giving me a little bit of a break from the nonstop action, I'm not going to have time to slow down enough to think for myself as you're telling. So think about that back and forth, varying the pace. Um, you want to start with, with some action, fa fairly fast-paced relative to your story. Then you're going to want to slow down a little bit. Explain what's going on. Um, let me know what led up to this point. And then um, if it's a short story, you'll probably just from there speed back up to the end, resolve the action, slow down just a little bit, and stop. Um, if it's a longer story, there's probably going to be a few, a, a few times that you'll do that. The action speeds up, and then we slow down. Then the action speeds up, and then we slow down. But you're going to want to always begin on the more fast-paced side, and you're always going to want to end more on the fast-paced side. But think about varying that pace. Think about um, keeping the story moving without making it exhausting. Think again about the story of Jonah. So it begins with action. By the time that we're four, four verses in, God has commanded Jonah to go. Jonah has ignored God's command. He's booked passage on a ship, and he set out for Tarshish, and a storm has come up. Four verses. All of that has happened. Then, like I mentioned earlier, as the storm is raging, it slows down a little bit. As the, as the sailors come and they talk to Jonah and they have this conversation with him, trying to figure out what's going on. And he explains to them the reason for it. Well, then it starts moving again. As they're trying to fight against the storm, and finally they give in and throw him <coughs> into the sea. And then 
the whale swallows him and it slows down again. And we have a whole chapter, or not a whole chapter, but we've got an extended, uh, uh, extended passage where it's Jonah in the whale's belly crying out to God in prayer. Well, then it starts moving again. Jonah's out of the whale's belly. He's headed to Nineveh. He's preaching. The people are responding. And then it slows down again a little bit as the king gives his decree. And the Bible goes into a, uh, a decent amount of detail about the king's decree to all of the people and how they ought to respond. And then we finish up with God's conversation, uh, Jonah's conversation with God. And we end with, um, with God's challenge in the, in the form of a question. But there's a lot of this back and forth. There's a varying of the pace between fast-paced, lots of action, and slower, more thoughtful. Often the times when people are speaking, the action slows down. That keeps the, movie, it keeps the story moving without overwhelming us with action. And it also keeps us focused while giving us time to think. So think about that as you tell your story. Think about varying that pace to keep me engaged, keep things moving along, but give me time to think. Because if you get me started thinking as you're telling the story, I'm probably going to continue thinking long after you finish telling the story. Perhaps, though, even more important than how you begin a story or how you treat pace throughout the story is how you end it. And that involves two aspects. First is the resolution. All right? This is not a fiction writing class. We're not going to be talking about all the principles of form and technique that are associated with crafting a story. Um, I'm sure there's some validity to those things. Most of the time when we're telling a story, we can't be thinking about all of that stuff as we're doing it. But there is one principle that always comes up with, if you've ever been part of a class talking about fiction writing, that is conflict, what I prefer to call tension. That is something really important to consider um, with the way you tell your story, and specifically as you're coming to the end, how you're going to resolve that tension. Uh, stories thrive on tension. It, it's tension that carries a story to its end and that keeps the hearers engaged. I'm engaged because there's still an unanswered question. There's still a problem that needs to be resolved. There's still a decision that needs to be made. There's still something that hasn't quite been fixed, been brought to a satisfactory resolution. And so I'm going to stay engaged until that resolution happens. So the way you resolve that action is going to be important, and when you resolve that action is going to be important. <coughs> the interesting thing is that most often, as we're listening to a story, we're waiting for that resolution. That's what we're looking for. That's what, we're, that's what we think the point of the story is. Most often, though, the resolution is not the actual point of the story. The true point of the story is something usually that has more to do with the tension, with the conflict, with how that conflict is, is faced, um, with what's going on in someone's mind and heart in response to that conflict or that tension. That's often where the true lesson is, not in the resolution. But you, you might say, well, if that's not the real point, then it doesn't matter how I resolve it, right? It just matters that I get that lesson across. 
The issue is that if somebody's listening to a story, they want a satisfactory resolution to the tension. And if you don't give them a satisfactory resolution to the tension, what are they going to come away from that story with? Questions. How did it end? How did that problem get fixed? What decision did they make? We hate it when somebody comes to the end of a story and they haven't completely resolved the tension or the conflict. So what you need to do is resolve it in order to help them to focus on the other part that's actually important, if that makes sense. The lesson is probably going to be separate from the tension, from the conflict or the resolution, but you need to give that satisfactory resolution so that their attention can be drawn back to the true lesson. I mentioned earlier the book of Ruth, and I mentioned the overarching tension in the book, the bitterness and loneliness of Naomi, her feeling that she's been deserted by God. Um, there's also a secondary level of tension as Ruth meets Boaz, and we wonder where this re re relationship is going, especially when it's discovered that Boaz has a hurdle to overcome if he's going to ha have her hand in marriage. And so there's this other tension, a secondary tension to the story. And I love, as you read through the story, how both tensions are resolved. So in chapter 4, the secondary tension is resolved as Boaz comes to the, the elders at the gate of, of Bethlehem, and he, uh, he speaks to this other, um, this other kinsman and says, this is your responsibility but then he shares that Ruth is uh, a Moabitess, and the other guy's like, no, 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 no way. And so Boaz is able to resolve it. He's able to, to have Ruth. They get married. Yay. Tension is resolved. The, sec the, the primary tension with Naomi is also resolved in that chapter. As Boaz and Ruth have this baby boy, Obed, and Naomi's joy is restored as she once again has a family. She has Ruth. She has Boaz. She has this, this grandson. She, she becomes the caretaker for her grandson. And her joy is restored. Even the other people in the town of Bethlehem come to her and say, look, God hasn't forgotten about you. Look what God has done in your life. So the, the, uh, both of those tensions are resolved, and through it all we realize that the real lesson that we learn here is that God is at work. None of his children are truly deserted. Naomi started with this attitude, this bitterness, this thought that God has left me alone. And as we come to the end of the story, we realize nowhere throughout all this action did God leave her alone. He was at work through it all. He was putting things together that she couldn't even have imagined. His ways are often invisible to us, but he is working and faithfulness and selfless service will be rewarded. We see that with Ruth, perhaps in ways we couldn't imagine. You will notice, as you read the book of Ruth, that chapter 4 brings resolution to the tension. So, Boaz and Ruth get married. All right, tension resolved. Naomi has this grandson. She's joyful. She's got this, this daughter, Ruth. She's got this son-in-law, Boaz. She's got this, this grandson. Her joy is restored. Her faith in God is restored. Tension resolved. And, and almost immediately, the story's over. 
that brings us to the final part of well-paced stories, and that is the end. Oops, I'm, uh, I'm behind in my... There we go. The end. Give thought to how you're going to end your story. And the ending itself should be brief. This is one of those areas, just like the beginning, where we can start to want to drag on and on and on and on and on. Once the tension is resolved, you don't really have your hearer's attention for very much longer. Once you've fixed the problem, once the decision has been made, once the problem has been taken care of, the resolution has come, then they're going to stop caring almost immediately. So you want to think about how you bring the story to an end quickly, but in a way that points them towards the ultimate lesson of the story. So if you do this thoughtfully, the wrap-up of the story can direct their thoughts toward that big takeaway. Their mind can be satisfied by the resolution of the tension, and then you can leave them thinking about the lesson of the story. So, again, we see this with the book of Ruth. Here's how Ruth 4, um, here's the ending part of Ruth 4. And we see here the resolution of the tension and how the story ends. It's quick, but it points us to the, the true lesson of, of this book. So Boaz took Ruth, this is verse, verse 13, and she was his wife, and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he, he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto it. And the women her neighbors gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Pharez. Pharez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Now, you might think, genealogy, really? That's like the worst way ever to end a story. But what is the point that's being made? Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed is the grandfather of David. God has not forgotten. God is still at work in his nation. Remember, this is the time of the judges. Um, a leader will arise, and there will be kind of victory, and things are going okay for a while, and then he'll fade away, and they'll go back into captivity. And Israel is kind of up and down and up and down. There's no stability. And it might seem like God has forgotten us. He's just left us to our own devices. That's how Israel feels. That's how Naomi feels. But God is saying, Naomi, I haven't forgotten about you. Israel, I haven't forgotten about you. David is coming. He's going to be this king, uh, this good and great king, this king who will lead the nation to look to God, he'll bring stability, he'll bring strength, he'll grow the kingdom. I haven't forgotten. And of course we realize that that's just the beginning, that the throne of David is going to be this theme that's introduced that will carry us all the way through to the Messiah and all the way through even into eternity as Jesus sits on the throne of David. So it might seem like a genealogy is a weird way to end, 
but it's reminding us of something really important. And it's drawing our attention to the true lesson of this story. This also applies to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah begins with a th- or, or ends with a thought-provoking question. God is asking this question of Jonah, but it causes us to ask ourselves about our own lack of mercy. God is challenging Jonah about his perspective and whether he's looking at these people the way that God looks at him. And as we end with that question, we're not thinking primarily about a whale and a storm and even Jonah walking through and preaching to this city. We're thinking about mercy. And where is my mercy? And does my heart reflect the heart of God? Do I look at other people the way that God looks at them? Another scriptural example is, uh, of a good ending is how the Gospels end. So it's interesting to go through and look at each of the four Gospels and how they end. Matthew ends with the Great Commission, specifically with the words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Book's over. Mark ends with the Ascension. It talks about Christ sitting at Christ's right hand. And then it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming, confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So, Christ is ascended. The work continues. The preaching goes on. They're spreading the message. Luke is very much the same. There's the ascension, and then it says, They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And then John ends with the, with the words about that if all the things that Jesus did were written, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. That's how each of the Gospels end. And it draws our attention very intentionally to some things. First of all, to the greatness of Christ. But also to the continuing action. Looking forward, saying Christ's work on earth was done, but the work was not done. The disciples were carrying it on. And it gives us that lesson, that message. The work is not intended to be done. Just because Christ went back up to heaven, he gave us a commission. He gave us a job to do. And are we doing it? And so it wraps up the story quickly, but it leaves us with that lesson. So give thought to how you you end your story. Think about how you can... Once the action is, once the tension is resolved, how can I quickly end this story but point them to the takeaway without sounding moralistic, without saying, and the moral of the story is. But how can I point them to what was really significant? What is it that we can learn from this story? And leave them with that. Think about two to three well-crafted sentences that you can end with and stories over. Now, I promised you that I would give you the rest of the personal story about our van not starting. And uh, so here's the whole story, all right? I'm having a great day. I'm enjoying some time away with my wife. We're out, we're getting ready to grab some food and head home, and I turn the key in the ignition and nothing happens. Now, we have a babysitter that day. 
So we're just enjoying the day. We're, we're taking our time. We're running some errands. We're living the simple life, life without kids. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It seems like a dream. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my kids. But sometimes, just to be perfectly honest with you, their presence can feel like a burden. But on this day, we're free. And then the van won't start. And it's weird because it's not clicking. It's not trying to turn over. It's just nothing. Nothing's happening. So we try all kinds of things. We try to, you know, hold it extra long. Nothing happens. We try putting the, the van in neutral. Nothing happens. Um, we start to Google it. And uh, nothing's working. We pop the hood and look underneath. Not because I have any idea what I'm looking at, but it's just what you're supposed to do in a situation like that. We're clearly getting nowhere, and a woman walks up to the van. And she can tell we're having trouble. I don't know if it was the popped hood or the frantic looks on our faces, but she can tell we're in trouble. And uh, we tell her what's happening. She looks at a couple things. She asks about some stuff. She makes some suggestions that we've already tried. There's nothing she can do. We thank her for her help. You know, it was kind of her to stop and, and try to help. She leaves, and the more we try, the more that we Google the issue, the more it seems like it's probably the starter. It looks like we're going to have to get a tow. And so I call my dad to bail us out. He's going to come pick us up, and I'll work out the getting towed part later. And working out the details with my dad, when the woman who'd approached us earlier pulls up beside us, she tells us that she, she called her husband. He's a mechanic. And when she described the symptoms to him, he was pretty sure it was the starter. And uh, she thought it would be helpful for us to know, so she drove back over to tell us. And I remember thinking that it seemed silly for her to have gone through that much trouble. It's not like she had a spare starter in her <laughs> SUV and could fix the problem with her, uh, fix the problem for us. Um, she was just giving us information. It felt like a lot of trouble to go through just to give us some information. But it was a nice gesture. She was just doing what she could, giving us some info that might help us. There's nothing big, but it was unusual. I mean, who goes through that much trouble to try to help a stranger in a day where everybody has a cell phone and they can figure out their own solution to a problem? Well, she wasn't part of the solution that day, but we were grateful for the time and effort she had given to us for trying to help, and so we thank her, and she gets ready to drive away. But before she leaves, I notice something. I look over at her vehicle, and I see kids looking out the back windows at us. And a thought strikes me. She didn't do much to change our situation that day, but she did make a difference. Because that day, those kids learned from mom's example, that when you see someone in trouble, you try to help. Those kids learned that mercy, not convenience, should drive what you do. That day, that mom was teaching her kids that helping others is just what you do. And it reminded me that every day my kids, those kids who know how to be the sweetest kids in the world and also know how to drive me up a wall, they're watching me. And they're learning from my example. Well, my dad rescued us. Our van eventually got towed. That's a, another whole story in itself. Uh, and the starter got replaced. But to this day, that image sticks with me. I can still see those kids 
looking out the windows of that SUV, watching their mom and learning, whether or not she realized they were learning. They were learning lessons for life from the everyday example of their mom. Now, I don't mean to suggest that I told that story perfectly, but I hope you notice some ways that I use pacing to draw you in, help you feel the action, but also to point your attention to the key points in the story. That story is not about a, a van that wouldn't start. That's how I introduce tension, but the real point is a lesson about the eyes that are always watching us. I took some time to explain, once I had you on that cliff, wondering what was gonna happen to the non-starting vehicle. Um, I varied between moments of action and moments where the action slowed, and I resolved the conflict and then quickly wrapped up the story, leaving you thinking, not about a van getting fixed, but about a mom and the example she set for her kids. So be sure to consider pacing. Think about how you'll begin and end. Think about how the action will ebb and flow between those points. Pacing is important, but if you get nothing else from this, pay attention to how you start your story, start with tension, and pay attention to how you end. Resolve the action, and then end quickly. Like I said the other, the other lesson, it's much better to end your story and have people wishing for more than to make them wonder when in the world you're going to shut your mouth. <laughs> now, I gave you a few, a few notes, some tips for using biblical stories. I'm not going to take time with that because we're already way over time. Um, but uh, take a look at that. Um, Think about how, we, how you can effectively use biblical stories as you're seeking to, um, to use stories for God's glory. Beginning next work week, we're going to be talking about how to tell well-told stories for the right purpose, how they can be tools to point others to the Lord. I'm excited to get into that. I hope that these practical lessons on what makes a well-told story have been helpful. But really, what we're going to get into next is more important than that. Because even a poorly told story told for the right reason can be more effective than a well-told story told for the wrong reason, if that makes sense. So I'm praying for God's grace as we get into that next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.